0: Hey everybody welcome to audio judo i'm matthew i'm kyle and uh we are happy to have you back with us for another edition of our uh, rousing interplay Ooh, i know right those are some big words that's all i got that's, that's it. it
1: that's that's the english degree that's right i'm there. done like I,
0: I got nothing <laughs> uh a little old business to cover Ooh. i have a correction from the childish gambino episode um at the very end of it I mentioned the passing of Neil Innes and I had said that his band the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band was in Hard Days Night by the Beatles. Uh that was incorrect. Oh, uh, they were actually in the mag- Magical Mystery Tour movie. So oh. I just want to make sure that we get things correct around here. I don't want to you know cool. th- put out bad information. Um we also received a phone call yes from a listener So uh, we're gonna play it for you right now.
2: Hey there, Matthew and Kyle. This is Keith from Henderson, Nevada. Long time listener, first time caller. I wanted to thank you for making the podcast. I really enjoy listening to it while I'm at work. I've learned a lot, I've discovered new bands and rediscovered some old groups as well. In the spirit of sharing music, I wanted to share a band with you that I've been listening to for a little over 20 years. They're called Alabama Three from the UK and are largely unknown in the United States, other than, for whatever reason, some pretty heavy radio play in central Ohio around 1997, which is where I heard them for the first time. Later, and most notably their song, Woke Up This Morning, would become the theme song for The Sopranos on HBO. They currently have 11 studio albums and have produced some really interesting originals and some great covers. I'd be curious to hear your take on them as a group, on their music as a unique style, or an album breakdown thank you again for your work and i would be excited to hear this as an episode
0: that's awesome thanks keith yes thank you so much alabama three is not a band that i was familiar with yeah never uh, never even heard of them i did a little research listened to the sopranos thing it did not ring any bells so i'm gonna do a little research and see if we can't uh shoehorn some of that cool alabama 3 stuff and do a future episode so i yeah. appreciate the uh the suggestion
1: yeah i'll definitely have to check them out i haven't uh haven't listened to them at all yet but i think it's great yeah
0: and um for all all of our other listeners out there take take note and uh send us your suggestions send yes. us what you want to hear hear us talk about we will see what we can do you too can send us a voicemail if yes. you want
1: uh sort of well it's not really a voicemail it's just a recording recorded on your phone uh, and email it to us, info at audiojudo.com. We will play it on here unless it's something horribly vulgar or racist or...
0: Yeah, we probably won't play yeah. that. The, the studio is nearing completion. Yes, it uh, is. We've got a table and a couple other items, and then we'll be fully installed here. So that's good and that's exciting. That's cool. Um, and today we are talking about Hunky Dory by David Bowie. Yes, we are. And I am so glad <laughs> that you chose this particular... <laughs> Bowie record to talk about as it's one I haven't listened to for many, many years. It's it's
1: one of those albums as a whole that so many people they listen to the hits on it. And then as an album, the you know, so many people just think, Oh, well the, I'll just listen to this one track or I'll sure. listen to, you know, Changes or Life on Mars or Queen Bitch or whatever. And so many people listen to single tracks from it. And they don't sit down and listen to the album as a whole. And it's really is a fantastic album. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the only thing that I don't like about it, I think the last two
0: tracks should be flipped. Interesting.
1: Other than that, I think it's a great album. It's definitely my favorite Bowie album. Mm -hmm. It's definitely, uh, it has four of my top five David Bowie songs on it. Interesting. And three of those are in the first four tracks Wow. on this on this album. All right. So,
0: yeah. So I was never like a big, huge Bowie fan. Um, I'm familiar with all of his work, though, through the years. I've listened to pretty much everything that he's done. And I think I connected with him more in the late 80s uh, when he was in a band called Tin Machine
1: because
0: mm-hmm. um, it's a little more straight ahead rock and a little less uh, glam and art rock. But I've probably listened to this record like uh, five or ten times over the last, Thirty years or so but most of that was right out of high school because i honestly i don't think i've listened to this probably since 1990 91 and now i've listened to listen to it like 10 15 times in the last two weeks <laughs> and i've certainly never listened to it with the kind of intention mm-hmm. that we're giving it today and the thing i was most struck by was how musically diverse the record is yeah and how lyrically brilliant The record is, and I don't know that I ever purposely listened to the lyrics on this record before, which is another great uh, byproduct of the podcast is that it's kind of forcing it, forcing me to examine stuff that I have listened to for a long time with a completely different lens, and I think that's great. Yeah. So musically, especially at the very beginning, and it's not surprising considering it was released in 1971, is how much of it sounds like it was influenced by the Beatles. Yes. Um, And I'm pretty sure most things in the wake of Abbey Road and Let It Be around that time were influenced. Almost everything released around that time was probably carrying some pretty heavy Beatles influence. And it's not any surprise that Bowie and Lennon would eventually become very good friends. Yeah, Bowie even referring to him as a mentor on multiple occasions. But uh, it's no doubt that uh, when we do the track by track, this album wears the Beatles sound on its sleeve. Oh, absolutely it does. And that's okay.
1: Yeah. That's okay. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where everybody in this time period was influenced by the Beatles. I mean, that's just, there's not, I don't think there's, I don't think you can go listen to music from the sixties or even the early seventies and not hear influences of the Beatles because they were so big.
0: I don't think you can get around it. No. In that time frame, you absolutely can't get around it. And there's one caveat here. So one thing I can uh, definitely say as we move forward and also in the future with the podcast is... Uh, if you can, everybody that's listening, listen, into, listen to this record conventionally on speakers yes. in your car or whatever. But also, and I can't encourage this enough, listen in headphones when you get the chance. Absolutely, There's so much richness in this music that gets muddled in the car stereo or whatever that you just don't hear and uh, the phasing and stuff that they do with his voice that. That you want to be able to listen to this in headphones to get the true experience.
1: I would even say a good set of headphones. Yeah. Because, yeah, you can listen on ear pods or, or whatever. But uh, the better the set of headphones, the better off this is going to sound to you. I agree. Even, even the digitally remastered version sounds a lot better on a set of headphones.
0: And I have some opening notes here, but I know that, you know, I know this is a very personal record for you, yeah. Kyle. Yeah. So I'm going to let you drive the bus. So if right, you're cool. ready to like interrupt me at any point before we get to the track by track, yeah, well, you go right ahead.
1: I was just going to say, you know, I obviously everybody's heard David Bowie. I think he's one of those artists that you absolutely can't get by in life without having heard at least a song or a snippet of a song because it's, he was so popular and so well known. And I kind of first found David Bowie right at the end of high school, just before I was going into college. I did this really, in retrospect, it was a really stupid thing, but at the time it was a fantastic thing, where I graduated from high school a quarter early. Not a semester early, which would have been useful and I could have gotten some college classes under my belt. A quarter early, so I had an extra long summer
0: to fuck around. And I didn't even know they did that kind of stuff. I think it's a Utah thing. Ah,
1: Uh, as most things You know what? Fuck it, I'll explain it real quick. In Utah, (laughs) uh, in middle school and high school, because the... uh, I believe they now want to be called the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or Mormons, or LDS, or whatever you want to call them. Uh, they have, there are a lot of members in Utah. Kids in middle school and high school can actually choose to take a seminary class mm-hmm. as part of their high school and middle school curriculum. Okay. However, because of the, you know, you can't cross church and state. Is this in public school? This is in public schools. Okay. yes. Uh, There's a building across the street from almost every public middle and high school that is a Mormon seminary. Oh, interesting.
0: Um, This is not. uh, This is not information that I know.
1: Yeah, there you go. Um, Because of that, uh, they structure the high school, uh, the number of credits you need in middle school and high school, around the idea that everybody will be getting one less credit because everybody's obviously going to take the seminary class. Of course. I was not Mormon, so I didn't take any of the seminary classes. So by the time I got done with high school, I had all these extra built-up credits, and I was able to graduate early. Hmm. It was fantastic. All right. Uh, It was a great summer. I had a lot of fun. I did all kinds of new stuff. But it was also kind of the summer where I started to realize that I wasn't going through a phase. I wasn't waiting to find a girl. I wasn't going to wake up one morning and be like, wow, boobs are great. I realized I was gay. And I realized that I needed to come to terms with that. So one of the ways that I did that was I started trying to find really positive queer role models. Mm. And obviously, I spent a lot of time searching for people. And Bowie was one of the people that was big there because obviously he himself kind of flip flopped on whether he was. You know, Originally, he kind of said, oh, I'm gay. And then he said, well, I'm bisexual. But you look at the amount of women that we can confirm he had relationships with, and the amount of men we can confirm he had relationships with, and maybe not. The jury's
0: still up in the air, I think. Exactly. And it probably will be forever.
1: I I found him because of that, and because, uh, weirdly enough, my sister, who's three years younger than me, but has uh, much better musical taste than I do, if I'm honest— uh, with the exception of her short lived uh insane clown posse period. Ooh, I see boo. Uh yeah. <laughs> she was a juggalo for a little while. Uh, <laughs> but that that aside, she had great musical taste and she listened to Bowie a lot and she kind of helped point me in that direction at that time because I was like I wasn't really out to my family at that time, but I feel like she kind of knew what I was looking for and, and kind of pointed me in that direction. But uh, I did spend a lot of time that summer finding myself, and that's not a masturbation joke. Uh, I really did. I changed. Uh, you know, I started reading books that were not anything that had been in my wheelhouse before. I started listening to completely new music. Uh, if I'm honest, I drank and smoked a lot of pot that summer. It was. It was a good summer, right? What <laughs> producer Randy just gave me the
3: the dad look, like you did what? Yeah. I'm comfortable now.
1: Uh, but of course, you know, at that time, this would have been 2003. And at that time, the way that everybody got music was you just went and illegally downloaded somebody's entire catalog. Sure. So I went and downloaded literally everything Bowie had done up to that point and started listening to it. And I remember seeing Hunky Dory right as I was downloading it and being like, wow, that's a stupid name. That one probably sucks. I'm not going to listen to that. one." <laughs> and I, I didn't. I didn't for for the first couple of months. And finally, uh, uh, one night, um, I, I literally came home from uh, the shitty retail job that I had at the time, and it was like midnight, and I laid down in bed and put on my headphones, and I just selected it kind of at random. I was like, oh, this will, this will we'll see what this is, finally. And I was blown away. I ended up listening to it all night on repeat, over and over and over again, mm-hmm. specifically because, uh, like I said, four of my f- top five David Bowie songs are on this. Okay. It is, it was just like mind blowing to be just like, and it's, it's been with me since then. This album has been, it followed me all the way down to like my lowest point where I was pretty sure that it was going to be the last album I ever listened to. Hmm. And then it helped me climb back out of that hole, which was a pretty shitty place to be in, but sure. we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so you fast forward a couple of years, I'm finally to a point where I'm, I'm ready to start coming out to friends and family. And I decide I'm, I'm going to tell all my friends at once, I'm going to have a big party. I'm going to tell all my friends, I'm going to say, you know, I'm gay, deal with it. And I, I didn't really, if I'm honest, I had a bunch of liberal friends. They were, there were not a lot of friends that were going to be like, no, this is ridiculous. <laughs> it, was, it was people that I already trusted and that I knew would accept me. So my parents were out of town. I throw this big party. I spend all day cleaning up and getting ready. And you know, I I built this at the time. If you're young listening to this, you're not going to understand what I'm talking about. The thing to do was to burn an MP3 disc. Oh yeah, because you could hold hours of music on one disc instead of just seventy or eighty minutes. Mm -hmm. It was great. Uh, But uh, so I burned this big disc with a big playlist, and you know, I'm expecting everybody to show up at seven, and at six fifty-eight. I, I hit play changes comes on. I had opened this with hunky Dory. Cause I'm like, this is going to be great. It's going to be my psych up album. I'm going to listen to this. It's going to, going to be fantastic. Mm-hmm. So seven o'clock rolls around. I'm standing there. I'm making myself a drink. And I think it was not to name drop, but a uh, Tanqueray gin. Ah, I, I think have... at the time were the people that were advertising with the, the Mojito commercials.
0: Mm, Tanqueray. We're taking sponsors.
1: Yes. But uh, they they had those stupid commercials with the guy that said mojito. Oh yeah, okay. mojito. All right. And uh, because of that, I had bought a whole bunch of gin and limes and mint, and I was making mojitos. They, they were great. So I made one for myself, and I start drinking. And you know, seven fifteen rolls around, and nobody's there yet. I'm like, well, okay, this drink's gone. I better make another one. Seven twenty seven rolls around. Start making another one because I'm like, well, still nobody, still nobody there. Start making another drink. Did I get it? Thinking to myself, you know, did I get enough limes? I only bought, I only bought twelve limes. Is going to be enough? That's not enough limes. Seven fifty five rolls around. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm fucked. Nobody's coming. I'm going to be here all alone. Uh, Fuck this. Fuck. I'm not putting any mint in this one. It's just getting in the way. (laughs) Just squeeze some extra lime in there. Uh, Finally, eight oh eight. The doorbell rings. It's about four or five of my friends had come and I answered the door. One of my friends was like, Hey, what's going on? Jesus Christ, are you already really drunk? Maybe. Yeah. I've had like five mojitos by this point. Of course I'm drunk.
0: And so there was no mint in the last yeah, one. Yeah,
1: there was no mint in the last one. So it was just more alcohol. <laughs> so as the night goes on, I'm getting drunker and drunker and I'm panicking. I'm like, I can't fucking come out to all these people. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, this is I can't do this. It's too much stress. It's too much. I'm I'm not gonna be able to do it. So I decide, all right. My oldest friend in the world is here and I'm going to, I'm going to come out to him alone somewhere just so that it's, it's out there and I can, I can finally, you know, tell somebody this. And, uh, I, I finally find him. He's upstairs and he is laying face down on the floor in the hallway of my parents' house. So drunk that he can't sit up Mm. Uh, and I'm, so I sat down next to him and we, we talked, we talked for about an hour and, and finally uh, I kind of blurted out, you know, I- I'm gay. And he finally kind of sat up and looked at me and he said, that's okay. And, you know, without going into too many details, uh, about an hour later, he was getting out of my bed <laughs> to go use the bathroom. And, uh, and for the first time in a really long time, I felt really good um, and I fell asleep. So the next morning I, I get up and I go downstairs and five or six of my friends are still there. They'd slept on the couch or wherever, you know, and my one friend is pacing back and forth on the phone with his mom and I can hear her talking, but I can't tell what she's saying. And he uh, he puts the phone down and he turns around and the friend that I had come out to the night before, after I had fallen asleep, he went in the bathroom and slid his wrist.
0: Oh, this, this night's going so well. So
1: swimmingly well. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, And then panicked because obviously he was bleeding out and wrapped it up in a towel and drove himself (laughs) drunk and bleeding to the hospital. So good. Made it unsurprisingly, you know. Good. And uh, yeah, survived, thankfully.
3: Yeah.
1: It was a a weird time and a few weeks. It took me a few weeks to finally get to be alone with him. And we we had another long discussion. And uh, I just remember it really ending with him saying, well, at least I know I'm not gay now. And I said, yeah, me too. <laughs> and then jumped my ass back into the closet for several more years because mm. that kind of, you know, I was super worried that what I had done, what we had done, had caused him to, to try to kill himself. And sure. it, thankfully it had not. It was other issues in his life. And then, you know, coming over and drinking a whole bunch probably wasn't great for it.
0: No. But. Still, yeah. still pretty traumatic.
1: Pretty fucking traumatic. Yeah. But uh yeah. Uh so like I said, this album also I thought for a while was probably not for a while. I, I thought this was going to be the last album that I ever listened to because I, I was listening to it when I wrote a suicide note. Mm. Uh spoiler alert everybody, I didn't kill myself. I'm not a ghost. <laughs> I'm still alive. I'm actually in the podcast sure. studio. But that was that was really the point where I I, I bottomed out. Uh, I, I hit my lowest point. I was, I had basically failed my way out of school that I was going to. I didn't have a real job. I was kind of working construction sometimes. Um, I didn't have any friends that lived nearby me at the time because they had all either moved or uh, gone away. I had nobody to really talk to. And I kind of, I was just, I, like I said, I, I was miserable and depressed and I didn't see any way to get back out of there. And uh, I was listening to music and Hunky Dory happened to come on and that happened. It wasn't the the impetus for this, but I started to just write my own suicide note, Um, you know, and I made apologies and I I tried to, you know, rationalize what I was about to do. And I remember printing it out when uh, Queen Bitch was ending, which is the second to last track on Mm -hmm. here. And uh, I pulled, folded it up and, and put it on the kitchen table so my sister, who I was living with at the time, would find it before she found me. And I got, I got really, really close. I, uh, I know, sadly, that gunpowder tastes kind of like dirt and, and pepper and pennies, mm-hmm. which is a gross combination. Um, and that smooth sort of feeling on metal Uh, that you feel with like your hands or your fingers. It's actually really rough on a tongue, (laughs) as stupid as that sounds. Um, But uh, yeah, I I was that close. And uh, as stupid as this sounds when I say it out loud, uh, the reason why I'm still here is because I had to do a load of laundry. (laughs) I was sitting there about to kill myself And I realized that I had a huge hamper filled with laundry and I thought, Kyle, you jackass, you can't force your mom to come here after you're dead and have to do a load of laundry and then donate those clothes to somebody else. You can't do that. That's really fucked up. Killing yourself is fine, but having your mom do your laundry as an adult, that's pretty fucked up. Uh, so I, I stopped and went to do a load of laundry and then I had a nervous breakdown on the floor of our laundry room. And, uh, uh, ended up driving 300 miles home that night to my parents' house, uh, in a snowstorm with, like, I literally, I didn't finish, I didn't run the clothes through the dryer. I took wet clothes and threw them in a suitcase (laughs) to drive home. And thankfully, you know, I'm still here. Uh, that turned it around. I, I got home and I just, I literally got back to my parents' house. and I, I went to bed and my mom woke me up at like seven in the morning. She's like, What are you doing home? What's going on? I said, Hey, I, I got to move back in. I was like, I can't do it on my own for a while. Yeah. And I did. And thankfully, well, doing all of that, I got back on track. I went back to school. I found a better career. I found stuff that I actually enjoy doing and, and turned it around.
0: Well, I'm thankful <laughs> that that didn't happen. I'm thankful that you're here. And uh, more than anything, I'm thankful that that you're sharing that story. It's a really powerful story, Kyle. And that, and I'm grateful that you're here. I'm grateful that you're sharing it. It's, it's important. It's, a, it's important for people to hear.
1: There's only about three people that I've shared that story with, and now it's out on the internet uh, in audio <laughs> form. So that's kind of a big jump. Uh, uh, it's huge. Uh, it's, yeah.
0: it's huge. And, and I, I can't imagine, nor relate or begin to understand what you were going through at that moment. But I know that there are plenty of people out there that do go through that, and yeah. uh, there's hope. There's there's way through. There is the morass, and
1: th- there's help too. Always. Um, unfortunately, I didn't write it down, but uh, I will put it in the show notes. The suicide hotline. If you search for it on Google, it's the very first thing that comes up. If you ever feel like doing that, please call.
0: So, Kyle's uh, he's connected to this record. Yeah.
1: Uh, There are some positive connections too that I I do. This is much quicker, by the way. But uh, (laughs) after that, I didn't listen to this album for for several years for obvious reasons. Um, The next time I did was actually accidentally uh, while I was getting ready. I was in the shower and it just happened to come on and I couldn't skip it because I was all wet. Uh, But it was while I was getting ready to go to dinner with my boyfriend. And it was the dinner where afterwards I proposed and he's now my husband. See, so that's good minutes. so we've known each other for 10 years we've been married for seven we listened to it on our wedding night as well and then the last time before listening to it for this episode uh i listened to it on the night when david bowie passed away mm. uh what is that january 16th january 20, 10th 2016
0: 2016 sorry.
1: yeah but uh yeah that was really the last time i, I listened to it and so did a, a lot of other people apparently that night mm-hmm. yeah i hope that wasn't too depressing for everybody
0: no, it was I, important.
1: I hope the rest of this is uh, more upbeat. I think it was but, depressing.
0: Uh, I think it's important to hear, and, and I appreciate it. So, Hunky Dory, mm-hmm. David Bowie's fourth album. Yes. right, First album with RCA, second album in what music historians refer to as his classic period. Mm-hmm. Quote, unquote, classic David
1: period. David Bowie, classic period.
0: His first three albums kind of shifted between folk rock and hard rock with... The Man Who Sold the World, which was the album before this, falling into the hard rock-ish yeah. category. And following that album, he changed producers from the legendary Tony Visconti to the equally legend- legendary Ken Scott, who worked as an engineer for the Beatles and Procol Harum and would eventually work with Elton John and various other people of the 70s. Uh, David would then form a new band that would eventually become Spiders from Mars when he would assume his Ziggy Stardust role.
1: I was going to say, you'll all know that from uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Correct.
0: Those gentlemen were Mick Ronson on guitars and string arrangements, Trevor Boulder on bass guitar and trumpet, and Mick Woodmansey on drums. Also included on this album was the caped keyboardist Rick Wakeman before mm-hmm. his first mm-hmm. stint with Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, Rick Wakeman,
0: you show up in the weirdest places. He's so weird. This album starts to explore the glam rock and art rock stylings that that would define David Bowie's sound for most of the 70s after this.
1: I do think that this is a, (laughs) for some reason, David Bowie's Wikipedia page completely, like this album is mentioned obviously in the discography and all that stuff, but in the, the synopsis at the beginning, it mentions the man who sold the world. And then it says, after a period of experimentation, he reemerged in 1972 during the glam rock era with his flamboyant and androgynous alter ego Ziggy Stardust.
0: It totally skips this record.
1: Totally skips this record. And to me, this is the most important record in his entire catalog.
0: I would because, tend to agree with that.
1: So the first two records he did, David Bowie and David Bowie.
0: Bowie to Bowie.
1: Very, uh, very, you know, classic naming. He really, he was kind of, you know, it was this hippie sort of. You know, singer-songwriter, Bob dylan kind of sound, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't really going forward very fast. Man Who Sold the World, I feel like he kind of said, okay, I want to figure out the formula. And he started to work on it. He started to say, what do people actually want to listen to? What do people actually want to hear right now? I feel like this album is him perfecting that formula. This is the figuring it out album. He's figuring out what do people want to listen to, How do I put it down on an album? How do I stay true to myself as an artist, but also make something that people want to hear?
0: It's very commercial sounding.
1: It is very commercial sounding. That's absolutely true. But its I feel like he knew at this point, he's like, I want to do something like Ziggy Stardust. I want to change my persona. I want to try something completely different. But I don't want to do it if I can't do it successfully. Mm. And so he figured out on this album... The music side of it and said, this is the type of music stuff that I have to do in order to make the persona change work. And that's, and that's the formula that he used for the entire rest of his career. Cause he would change persona and then make a couple of albums or one album or whatever with that sound. And then that sound would start going away in pop culture and he'd say, what's next What's going to be popular in four years? What's going to be popular in six
0: years? Very forward thinking. Exactly. Always.
1: Let's make, let's figure that sound out. And he had come out with some albums that were figuring it out again. And then he would change his persona and start making those albums. He did that
0: over and over and over Yeah, again. that continued pretty much to the end of his career. Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, he was always kind of a little bit ahead of what the curve was. Yeah. And and sometimes it fell on his face.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Like he missed, kind of miss interpreted what the next phase was going to be yeah. and just missed and you're like oh
1: especially in the 90s the big time. some of those weird uh like heathen and
0: uh, oh. uh
1: what is it one yeah oh one dot outside i'm sorry it wasn't just outside it was one dot outside
0: a bunch of misses in a yeah. row and i was surprised like listening to this record how much acoustic guitar was actually on this record because i'd always i probably blocked it out over time but i yeah. assumed from the 80s and 90s you know that bowie was just Lots of guitars and synths and stuff, and it wasn't really this folk-driven. Yeah. And listening to it again after all these years, it's like uh, that's weird. I didn't realize there was that much uh, uh, acoustic instrument, uh, acoustic instrumentation in this record. Yeah, so that was a nice eye opener. So, do a little track by track here. Let's yeah, do let's do track it track by track. So, changes is first song. It,
1: it blows up as the first friggin' song. It's literally Bowie saying, "Hey, I'm going to be changing. This is different than anything I've done before, and what I do after this is going to be completely different."
0: It's the one. uh, It's one of the consummate David Bowie songs that absolutely stood the test of time, and it's and it's one of those songs that was so catchy and singable that when I was in my teens driving the car with my mom, she was singing along too, (laughs) like which was rare. Yeah, you know, and it was like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? (laughs) This is also a strongly uh, punchable song, and what I mean by that is I dare someone to say that they don't like that song because it would deserve a good punching. (laughs) I just want to hit them in the face.
1: It it is very much. It's not.
0: Like, like who could ever say, I don't like changes. I fucking hate changes by David Bowie. What a piece of garbage. And uh, I didn't realize that uh, Bowie was the saxophone player in the song as well. I didn't until we started researching this. That's great to find out. Uh, it was ranked a hundred and number one twenty eight on Rolling Stone's top five hundred rock songs of all time.
1: That is uh, that is one thing that uh, I knew that Bowie was popular, obviously, but in going through this, there are so many of the songs on this album, and so many times this album has showed up on top one hundred albums of all time, mm-hmm. top five hundred albums, top one thousand albums, top like every one of the major songs on this. Is in some music reviewer celebrities' top fifty songs. Yeah, it is unbelievable how popular these songs are.
0: Which is great. Yeah, it's great. Uh, this was also the last song that he performed live in two thousand six. Oh,
1: really, I did not know that.
0: Yes, uh, is such a strong song lyrically. It's you know introspection and reflection, uh, but also uh, outward defiance. I
1: was gonna say I know that he did go through the. Um, the whole, it was the the love it, hate it, tolerate it, love it cycle that so, so many pop music songs go through. Like the one that I always think of is uh, Rat with Round and Round. Oh, God. Where they just, you know, when it was a hit originally, they were just like every now and then say, yeah, round and round. And then they fucking started to hate it. I and hate they were just, song. they got up on stage and they round and round. And then they started to tolerate it because they're like, okay, we need the money. This is what's bringing people to this gig. And they started doing it, and then they worked their way back around to loving that song. I'm getting excited again. Bowie, uh, I should have written written it down in the quote, and I didn't. But uh, he basically said, you know, people were screaming at the concerts, David, David, changes, changes, David, David, changes, changes, because they wanted him to sing this for years. Even when he was completely beyond this music, they still wanted to hear changes.
0: Hmm. I think it's uh, lyrically just a fantastic song. It and, is. And uh, my favorite uh, passage in it goes like this. the
3: days seem the same. And these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite
1: aware of what they're going through. Change it.
3: Don't tell them to up, uh, all
0: it. it's the uh, and these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations they're quite aware of what they're going through very little needs to be elaborated on there i mean it's just wonderful yeah it's just great lyric stuff so uh next song oh you pretty things Don't you know you're driving
1: your mamas and papas insane? Mm -hmm.
0: This song was the one that really reminded me of the Beatles. Yes. Um, Sounds a lot like Martha, My Dear. It does. And it has that dance hall vibe, almost a little swingy in places. Yeah.
1: And I think that a lot of that's driven by the piano in
0: this. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to, lyrically, there's a lot to unpack uh, in this A lot of reviews that I read seem to be pointing to, like, aliens or some shit like that, some weird stuff. Um, That's not what I hear. Uh, He keeps referring to the homo superior, Mm -hmm. which feels to me more like the name for Superman and not Clark Kent, but Nietzsche's Superman. Yeah. Which uh, definition of that is um, he would not be a product of long evolution Rather, he would emerge whenever a man with superior potential completely masters himself and strikes off conventional Christian herd morality to create his own values, which are completely rooted in life on this earth. Wow. So he was talking this song, I feel, about the coming age of the Superman. And he caught a lot of shit for this because of these theories were effectively utilized by the Nazis for years. Yeah. Um, there's also some occult references in there, too obtusely he refers to golden rays and golden faces references to the hermetic order of the golden dawn Mm -hmm. which will come up later in this record
1: yeah that's on um, yeah
0: but i think it's a great song it's a really good song
1: it is and it's been covered a lot really there's a, a great cover by uh harvey danger from uh the album little round mirrors that uh is it's it's a great cover for some reason it always gets stuck in my head whenever i hear that version of it really it's a it's a very good cover
0: i like harvey danger a lot
1: yeah paranoia paranoia everybody's coming to get me what's next uh eight line
0: poem yep that's exactly what it is
1: right and that's exactly what it is it's an eight line poem however Every time this comes on, I think, wait, wait, is this a country album? What? It is so heavily influenced. The guitar, the twangy guitar is so heavily influenced by blues and country from the U.S. at the time. It's unbelievable that it's on this album,
0: but it fits. Yeah, it's very simple. Uh, Lyrics can be poetry or it could be like a deeper meaning. Um, My favorite part of the my favorite piece of research for this song was... um, Uh, Bowie was having a conversation with William S. Burroughs, Mm. author of Naked Lunch and LSD aficionado, uh, (laughs) who said to Bowie, well, I read this eight-line poem of yours, and it's very reminiscent of T.S. Eliot. And Bowie turned to him and said, never heard of him. (laughs) Perfect Bowie right there. (laughs) Yeah. That's great. Like, what? I don't care. That's just good. I just always
1: think about the line: "Will all the cacti find a home?"
0: Because <sighs> it's like,
1: <laughs> just on the surface, you're like, "Oh no, they're literally selling cactuses. It's fine." But then you're like, "But is, does it have a deeper meaning?
0: Do I need to deep, dig deep into this?" People try to dig down deep in the song, and they're like, "Well, the, you know, he, earlier he was looking out into the world, and now he's looking back into his apartment and seeing <laughs> all the plants and stuff." I'm like, oh, "Wait, but it, it, no, 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 stop, just." Don't do that. It's fine. It's, it's, it's fine. Just, just leave a, it. Just leave it as it is. Um, Life on Mars. Oh,
1: probably one of the best known Bowie songs
0: of all time. Yep. Other one that everybody knows off this yeah. record.
1: And I did not know the story behind this until we started doing the research yeah. for
0: this. Go ahead. So, you can tell yeah. that Tell that story. So
1: uh, in 1968, Claude Francois and Jacques Rival. I hope I'm pronouncing those right. Oh, <laughs> Wrote a song called, uh, in France, uh, wrote a song called Comme de Habitude. I hope I'm pronouncing that right as well.
0: All these names are really long. They all finish with, huh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly.
1: So there was a trend at the time for a bunch of uh, what they called francophone songs, which were French pop songs.
0: Francophone.
1: To be translated into English and sung by English artists. So uh, the songs of a, an artist named Jacques Brel uh, were famously translated into uh, English and sung by Dusty Springfield and Scott Walker. And so they felt that uh, this song, uh, Comed de Habitude, I hope, <laughs> were uh, ripe to be interpreted by somebody in English. And so David Bowie said, yeah, I'd really like to do that. So... um He actually wrote English lyrics for it, uh, and his version of the song is called Even a Fool Learns to Love, Um, and he didn't really have uh, the raw recordings of the song, so he literally played the record and then sang over it to make a demo for this, and it's out there. You can find it. It it just resurfaced shortly before he passed away, I think, but uh, it's not great. Um, However, uh, it was actually rejected a guy named Paul Anka had bought the rights to the song. Paul Anka, yeah. And and uh, decided that Bowie couldn't use it. He gave it to Frank Sinatra, uh, who released it as a song called, you may have heard of, called My Way. What? You know, a uh, weird little song. I but, think I've uh, heard
0: that song before. Yeah,
1: I don't think anybody has. Bowie was pissed.
0: <laughs> and he thought, he
1: he was like, that should have been my song. I could have done a way better job. So his response uh, was to write Life on Mars. And so it's kind of, a lot of the lyrics to this one are, are intentionally ridiculous. Mm. Um, on the cover notes to Hunky Dory, or I'm sorry, the sleeve notes to Hunky Dory, uh, this one is says, Inspired by Frankie. Ah. If you take the lyrics on their surface, it is a straightforward narrative of this girl who's fed up with life and she goes to see the movies to get away from it all and it the lyrics are all, you know, strangers fighting in the dance hall oh man look at those cavemen go it's such a
0: freak it's the freakiest show it's a head scratcher exactly me, lyrically it's,
1: yeah i mean it's all things that you would see in a movie theater basically
0: if you know that connection if you know that connection if, I, if you don't like i didn't lyrically this doesn't make any sense to me at all yeah okay and it's like what 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 is he talking about finish the story
1: Oh, that's kind of the end. Oh. That's, that's why David Bowie wrote it. But he wrote it very quickly. It took him like
0: a morning to write. So Bowie said in 1990, he said that uh, you fall in love, you write a love song, this is a love song. Hmm. That's all he said about it. it. Some said it was in the wake of his breakup with Hermione Farthingale, which sounds like a completely and totally made up name.
1: Oh, it does, yes.
0: But uh Whatever. It's a fantastic song. Pitchfork magazine calls it the best song of the nineteen seventies. Good, yes. I don't know if it's that good though. That's a that's a tall order to call anything the best song of the nineteen seventies. There's also a wonderful cover of this by Trent Reznor on the Watchman Watchmen uh TV show soundtrack. Oh really? Yes.
1: Oh I will have to check that out. That's that sounds good. cool. Very, very good. It I know that it was also um there's a cover of it from uh American horror story from a few seasons ago. I can't remember which season that was
0: freak show. Maybe I'm pretty, yes, it was, a, Probably it was yeah. freak
1: show, but uh, that was pretty good.
0: Hmm. So that's uh life on Mars. Yeah. Actually, there's one other thing uh, I go got to talk
1: about here. That's what I was trying to uh, find in here. Weirdly, this song kind of does that nice fade out of the, the strings that and it fades almost completely out. And then all of a sudden you hear the piano pick back up. And it's this kind of unusual piano playing, and then you hear a phone ringing, and the piano stops. And I always wondered, I was like, oh, obviously that had to be something intentional. They had to, you know, there's some meaning behind that or whatever. But it really was, it was from a previous take. That piano and the phone ringing was from a previous take. They had been playing the piano part. It had been great. They recorded it, and then the phone rang, and uh, I forget who it was, um... Uh, Mick Ronson, who happened to be in the studio, was just cursing and swearing like mad because we had to stop because the phone was ringing. (laughs) And uh, apparently, so they stopped, they wound the tape back, they erased it, but they screwed up when they were erasing it. And so they played the whole song over again onto the tape and it does that nice strings fade out. And then all of a sudden you hear the piano again and they hadn't intended that originally. It was an accident. And then you hear the phone ringing. And it just ends. And it's this weird mistake that happened because they didn't erase the tape correctly that today would never happen. Because if you were really like, oh, that's a that's a crappy take, you'd huh. throw it in another folder or delete it.
0: Right. Matt but because tape. they
1: had to use tape, that exists. And it's now this... Hugely, you know, like I said, I used to listen to this and be like, there's got to be significance there. It's got to be, who's calling on the phone? Is it Andy Warhol? Who is it? Who's so calling? Somebody
0: didn't stripe the tape all the way through before we recorded. Yeah,
1: that's exactly what it was. <laughs> that's a good
0: story. I like that.
1: Yeah, I like that too.
0: Kooks. Kooks. Song is very obviously about the birth of his first child. Zoe Bowie. Zoe Bowie. Also known as Duncan Uh, Has a swingy, almost countryish vibe to it. Yeah. Uh, When I listened a little bit closer, it sounds like uh, it sounds a little like Neil Young. Yes, it does. Um, And this album, and that was a thing that reminded me. This album wears all of its influences so much out in the open. Yeah. So far, the Beatles and Neil Young, and there's some other influences coming later on. But it's like a nice little love letter to his kid that paints a picture of how his parents were when they became. New parents mm-hmm. and I think all of us parents try to do the uh, do that same thing in some way when the kids are first born is try to freeze it for a moment to always remember it, and there's he gets this little time capsule song for all time, yeah that it can always listen to, which is great
1: I think that's so cool and i I do think too that uh if you've never heard of zoe Bowie Zoe Bowie uh you may have heard of uh, Duncan Jones. Uh, who is now a fairly well-known film director. He's done uh, Moon. is probably his most famous piece. Mm-hmm. He also did the World of Warcraft movie um, and a couple others. But uh, I think that it's awesome that he was able to not only find himself out from under the shadow of somebody like Bowie, who cast a gigantic shadow, mm-hmm. but that he was able to do it completely on his own and do it in a way that is, is unique and, and, uh, great. Like moon is a fantastic movie. It Absolutely. won all kinds of awards for being, uh, you know, the uh, it it's was almost Sam Rockwell. Uh, yes. Yeah. And he's, uh, he's collecting hydrogen three on the moon and he ends up, they, he thinks he's, they basically decide they're going to kill him and right. He hides in a rocket to get back to earth, but yeah, it's, it's a great movie. It's if a good you've never movie. Yeah. A little long, right. but, uh, it's still good,
0: cool. Uh, Quicksand,
1: this is a weird song.
0: Uh, I mentioned a few <laughs> songs ago, um, for all oh, you pretty things, that uh, there are some pretty specific references to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, uh, later, and they are in this song. Yes, um, he references Alistair Crowley, who was a member of the order. He was once referred to as the wickedest man in the world. He was an occultist and novelist, and he would leave the order of the dawn to start a religion of his own called uh, a wrote a book called the book of the law the law being do what thou'st will that is the whole of the law so not surprising that normal society was afraid of him yeah very in line with um the illuminati and he was attached um that's kind of where uh the masonic order and the illuminati and all those kind of got wound together and uh, people perceived one as the other so Crowley was basically saying you do whatever makes you happy at any given time whatever that happens to be and that's a big problem yes bowie name checks uh heinrich himmler churchill and garbo in this song as well and not greta garbo the 20s actress but uh, juan pujol codenamed garbo who was a double agent for britain against the nazis in world war ii Hmm. So there's more Nazi references in this song, which isn't great for Bowie's image. Um, However, this song is wonderful. I love this song. It has a great guitar part. The singing is superb. Uh, People have listened to this song for years, assumed it was uh, a fatalist song, because it has uh, has lines like this.
3: Don't believe in yourself Don't deceive Release. Ah,
0: ah, 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 ah. Lines like, uh, Don't believe in yourself, don't deceive with belief. Knowledge comes with death's release. This is very much in line with Buddhist Eastern philosophies and the aforementioned Superman concept from Nietzsche the death of self. Uh, it's not about idealizing yourself, but being able to free your mind and the knowledge that you seek comes when you have death of self or death of self-idealizing. And it's a lot to pack into a rock song. Yes, it is. But it's all in there if you take the time to dig through these lyrics, which is what is just so fantastic. Because as an 18-year-old, I had no concept of any of this stuff. And now as 47 going back and all the stuff that I've read through the years all goes back to this and I'm like oh my gosh how many more of these are out there that I don't know about lots like in all the stuff that I listen to like people are just talking about I'm like whatever I'm listening to this and when you really go and unpack it it's like so dense and structured and layered and it's fantastic and I I love this song um not surprisingly with all the uh, Aleister Crowley stuff in there, Marilyn Manson has said this is one of his two favorite Bowie songs.
1: Oh, what a surprise. The
0: other being Ashes to Ashes.
1: Later on, this song was kind of used because he does mention you know, Nazis and the occultism. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he later on said that uh, Great Britain was, I believe the I should have written the quote down. I'm sorry, I didn't. But uh, I believe the quote was something along the lines of, Great Britain is ready for a fascist leader, another Hitler to come in and... Uh, take control and clean out the yes, clean out the gutters or something like that.
0: Maybe he shouldn't have said that.
1: No, probably wasn't a, a great choice there. And uh, a lot of people looked back and said, "Oh, he mentioned you know Goebbels and you know Nazism and other cultism in these previous songs." And uh, he also later recanted that and said, "I was so coked out, I didn't know what I was saying." I would so some of it. You know,
0: yes. I would say some of it. Yes, but but. The Eastern stuff, the, the Buddhist yes. philosophy, even the Nietzsche references, which, yes, Nietzsche was German, but just because he was German doesn't mean he was wrong. Yeah. So there's a lot of validity to some of his theories. Uh, Fill Your Heart is next, um, which I did not really – I didn't realize that this was a cover song. Oh. Originally written by comedy writer Biff Rose and songwriter Paul Williams, who would eventually write with the Muppets. Hmm. Uh, it was originally recorded and released as the B-side to Tiny Tim's Tiptoe tip Through the Tulips.
1: I did not know that. Yeah.
0: It's the first song on the second side of the LP, and which I consider to definitely be the weaker side of the record. Yeah, I would agree. But it almost feels like this is where he starts to get really referential with other bands and sounds and stuff. Yes. Uh, I have some lyrical comments about it, but I'm going to save those for the end of when we're all done.
1: I do think that uh, "Fill Your Heart" has a great piano in it,
0: though. I agree.
1: I just I feel like it's it's very punchy and very upbeat, and I it's, like it.
0: It's Rick Wakeman, man. Yeah, it's, it's the cape guy,
1: and it does this great
0: lead out to a goose, right? The goose at the beginning of uh, <laughs> Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol. Not, Warhol. Not War, Warhol.
1: Warhol. Warhol.
0: An ode to Andy Warhol, like halls. Lyrically, not so great. But musically, one of my very favorite songs because it's got this flamenco inspired guitar riff that is so great. And there's this really odd vocal key change that I absolutely love that happens like right in the middle of the song that every time I hear it, I'm like, that is so cool.
3: When you wake up on the sea, be sure to think of me and you. To think about paint and to think about blue, what a jolly boring thing to do.
0: Andy Warhol, scream. I love that part. That's uh, cool. It sounds so cool. Uh, and Bowie said that he played it for Andy Warhol one time.
1: Yeah. At the factory in New York City.
0: Right. In September 1971. Mm-hmm. And Warhol uh, rarely reacted to anything. So he didn't know whether he liked it or yeah.
1: not. <laughs> <laughs> the the story i read was bowie was all excited and he played it and andy warhol just kind of stood there and then just kind of like walked away and mentioned the paint on the wall or something and kept walking
0: great job there andy so
1: <laughs> ichiro <laughs> shiramu i don't i don't remember the actual tdk words. oh andy warhol i'll post the there's a horrible tdk not horrible It's a fantastic TDK.
0: You have to post it. Yeah.
1: A commercial that Andy Warhol did for the TDK tape company in Japanese. And it's the funniest. Like I was telling Matthew earlier, for some reason, it comes into my life about every (laughs) five years. And every time I'm like,
0: it's amazing. He made me watch it. And I'm like, I don't notice this. uh, It's weird. It's weird.
1: I'll post it in the chat. 80 some
0: takes later. This is the best we got. Like, oh no. Uh, Song for Bob Dylan.
1: I feel like he's probably uh, writing this for
0: Bob Dylan. See it? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure if, if if this is supposed to be an homage to Dylan or if he's ripping on him. Yeah, I can't tell. I can tell you that it's not my favorite song on the record. No, and the mo- the one I would most likely skip over if I were going to do that. Part of me leans on "Rip" because I kept listening to the music and going, "Why." does this sound kind of familiar to me? And I finally figured out what it sounded like. Mm. It sounds like Up on Cripple Creek by The Band. Oh. And The Band was Bob Dylan's backup band for many years before they became the band proper. Huh. So I feel like Bowie is trying to make it sound like Dylan, but I don't really know. And the original name of the song was actually Song for Bob Dylan, Here She Comes. So still, is he making fun of him? Yeah. I still can't tell. But it's if you listen to it, without the twanging keyboard of Up on Cri- Cripple Creek, it sounds so much like that song. Like, hmm. when I was uh, out walking the dog and I was listening to it in headphones, I'm like, why Why does this sound so damn familiar? Like, why? where have I heard this sound before? So I started to, like, thumb through stuff. And I'm like, oh. There it is. <laughs> Up on Cripple Creek.
1: Hmm. I will have to listen to those two side by side.
0: But other than that, the song's just kind of, that one just kind of lays there.
1: I do know that this was also, it was directly influenced by Bob Dylan's song, uh, song to Woody, who's, that's Woody about Guthrie. Woody Guthrie. But I don't know, I, I agree with you. I don't know whether he's trying to be like, Bob Dylan, you're pretty great, or Bob Dylan, you, you're not that great. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, you could, I think, I think maybe that's intentional. I think maybe it's supposed to be if you like Bob Dylan, you would think of this as a positive song. And if you hate Bob Dylan, you would think of this as a negative song.
0: That's fair. So I guess it's just uh, open to your interpretation. Yeah. Queen Bitch. This is my favorite Bowie song of all time. This is such an absolute, it's such a great song and so obviously a nod to Lou Reed and Velvet Underground. Oh,
1: absolutely. He
0: mimics Lou Reed's delivery. Like, Almost throughout the whole thing.
1: Yeah, it's hard to describe this song to other people without just
0: playing this song. It didn't get a lot of uh, didn't get a lot of love when it was first yeah, released. A lot of people hated it, and it ended up being the B side for Rebel Rebel in 1974. He <laughs> re released it. Uh, I kept listening to this one over and over again, like I was listening to the last one, and trying to figure out why the vocal delivery sounded so familiar to me in some places. And there's a part right before the chorus that sounds like this. And it's the, let's see, it's it's, uh, now she's leading him on and she'll lay him right down. Yes, yeah, she's leading him on and she'll lay him right down, but it could have been me. Yes, it could have been me. Why didn't I say? Why didn't I say no, no, no? It is eerily similar to Mr. Brightside by the Killers. Um, there's a musical similarity and a quality that reminds me is really close and it's clear who the Killers are influenced by, hmm. but it sounds like I kind of A and B'd them mm-hmm. when I was figured out what I was hearing in my head. I A, a and B'd those two two songs that uh, those specific parts and it's the meters almost dead on how he's delivering how uh mr Brightside is delivered huh so clearly i don't know if it's copying or emulation i guess that's up for you to decide yeah what'd you find
1: uh i was trying to remember the name of the movie that this uh it's the life aquatic with steve Zissou. this is the uh they play this over the closing credits and it and For some reason, it fits so perfectly there that like, it, it just—it's like it was written for that movie.
0: So, what's your connection to this? So, why, why you love this song so much?
1: I don't know. Yeah, it's just—it's a very, just the opening. It's so—it starts out just that tune, 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 and then a huge guitar just rips in. Yep, and it's so—I uh, don't even know. I don't have words to describe this. It is a. A rock song, but it's not a rock song. It's, it's like, a, it's like a proto rock song.
0: Quintessential rock song sound is what I have written and down. there you go. Cause it, that's what it sounds like. The way it, it just like it hits you. right Yeah. In the bass and it's, it's structured like a, like a normal kind of rock song. First chorus, first chorus, bridge, chorus, out. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's, it's very good. it, foreshadows a lot of things to come in the 70s.
1: Yes. As Bowie did over and over and over again, it was, I feel like this probably, actually, you know what we should talk about really quick. Mm -hmm. So since the Velvet Underground is involved with this song, Mm -hmm. uh, this is kind of a tribute to them. The first time I listened to the Velvet Underground, I didn't understand them. Because everybody kept telling me, oh, you got to listen to them. They influenced so much of rock. And I listened to them. And I was like, but this is so generic. This is so, why do I care about this? This is so, you know, there's a hundred other bands that sound like this. But it's because you, I had to understand the time that it was happening in. They were first. Mm-hmm. They invented that sound and then pushed it forward. And I think that's the same thing that's happening here is this is a sound that we listen to it now and we're like, oh, it's quintessential rock. It's that you know rock sound that we heard all through the 70s. Nobody had done it yet. Mm. And it was the Velvet Underground and it was this song that was a tribute to the Velvet Underground. And it was a few other bands that were grabbing that sound from each other and then they pushed it forward and it opened up into what would become the 70s rock era. And I think that it's a, a weird thing that happens over and over and over again in music where you, when you have the hindsight of of being, God, what's the right way to say this? When you have the history there, mm-hmm. when you can go back and listen to all the music of an era or when you can go back and say, you know, I want to cherry pick just the best stuff from this era. It's very difficult to say, oh, you know, oh, let me rephrase that. It's very easy to say that all of this sounds the same, it's all, you know, uh, uh, plain and yeah, it's the sound of that time. But when you actually dig deeper and you look at it and you say, okay, yes, these people were first, they actually came up with this sound and then everybody took that and copied it and ran with it and expanded on it Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, did what artists do where they, they take something that somebody else has done and remake it and then blow it out.
0: It's got to start somewhere. Exactly.
1: And I think that that happens so much in music and just the Velvet Underground was the first time I realized that, that it was something that happens over and over and over again and that it's something that uh, is, that's what music is. That's really what it is, is it's taking something that other people are doing and then expanding
0: on it. And not to go on too wild of a tangent here, but to me, that experience was more related uh, to the Beatles because as a, as a child or even an adolescent, I'm like listening to the Beatles going, ah, that's so simple. Like who cares? What's so big deal about that being such a great song? It's simple until you realize, until you get old enough to realize that they were the ones doing it first. And they would be, you know, the, the, uh, the base that everyone else built upon for pop and rock music for the next 50, 60 years is that, yeah, well, why do I hear so much Beatles in this? Because you had to, because there was no other place to go to get re- reference from. So they went to the Beatles, Yes. Yeah. So they expanded upon that, and that's to me. That's I didn't understand that till later, because as a, as a kid, you're like, I'm like it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. It's super yeah. simple. I'm listening to way more complicated stuff over here, and but I get that. And the Velvet Underground. As a 14, 15-year-old, you don't understand it. You don't get it. Exactly. And you get it later. You, you, you're able to appreciate that later.
1: Because you understand the whole picture, or at least
0: more of the picture. More of the picture, right? Uh, the Beul- Lay brothers.
1: Lay brothers. I've, for some reason, for years, Beulay. I called this the Belway brothers.
2: And well, I don't I know why. That.
1: I just completely, it doesn't. It's not spelled like that at all, no. <laughs> but for some reason, my mind flipped the L and the W. And for years, I called it the Bellway Brothers, but it's the Beaulieu Brothers.
0: Song makes no sense, no, whatsoever. It, it intentionally didn't, and I love it. But lyrically, it's it uh, doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah, Bowie straight up said he made it for the American market because the Americans always like to read things into things. I have
0: that, I have, have that, that same word quote. for word.
1: <laughs> but uh, yeah, basically he was like, fuck it, let's throw a, let's throw a song on there that's going to confuse the Americans. And then he just threw a bunch of weird lyrics that, in it.
0: That was 1971. Yeah. In 2008, he said, there are layers of ghosts in it. <laughs> so the speculation has always been that it was about his uh, schizophrenic half-brother, Terry. Oh. But I'm not sure how you get there from the lyrics, but I've read that in a bunch of places. Hmm. Like he's referring to, and uh, it's a really dark song. Yes, Lots of is. tape effect and various speeding and stuff. But uh, whatever it is for Bowie, he named his publishing company in the late 70s, the Boulay Brothers. Yes. So obviously it had some sort of meaning to him that it wasn't just a throwaway song. And then that's that's kind of where I'm like, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And maybe he says he was just writing it for the American market. But I feel like there's something else there.
1: I kind of wonder if... You know, Bowie obviously has this huge history of, of uh, coming up with personas and reinventing himself and things. And even towards the end of his life, uh, there was a there's a, a nice uh, article talking about uh, uh, Brian Eno says that all the way up until the beginning of January, he and Bowie of uh, 2016, he and Bowie were emailing back and forth because that was the easiest way for them to communicate because he was in a Brian Eno was in London and mm-hmm. Bowie was in New York and it was easy for them to email each other back and forth to to communicate about a project that they were working on. And they would sort of have in every email there was like wordplay and they would have little, uh, you know, like tricky puzzles for each other to solve and they would always sign it as a different person. And I th- feel like, you know, if that was going on through Bowie's entire life, I wonder if when he was a kid. He did that. I mean, because obviously it came from somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that happened when he was a kid, and he and his brother uh, maybe called themselves uh, the Boulay Brothers. That's possible. And I wonder if that really is, you know, where that came from. That's an and, interesting you know, theory. You know, he just completely played it off as, you know, oh no, it's just a name, whatever. But then it became something more significant, and you know that's why he used it later on.
0: I like that story.
1: Or it could just be bullshit that he made him. Who knows? It could just be bullshit. Nobody knows. Uh,
0: What else? The cover. Yes. It's uh, based on a Marlene Dietrich picture that Bowie brought with him to the photo shoot. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he just emulated the picture and then they hand tinted it. Yeah. Which I love it.
1: And the, uh, I, I'm going to get this backwards because I didn't write it down, but I believe the american version did not have anything any text on the cover and the british ver- version did say hunky dory on
0: it hunky dory in the corner yeah and
1: that's the only difference between the two
0: it's a great record it is and i'm i'm glad uh well hold on i did say that i'd go back to something so oh yeah uh back to fill your heart so i've been grappling lately and this isn't nearly going to be as heavy as as kyle's stuff
1: uh, that's okay so, though it's still uh, uh, still
0: important but I've been grappling, struggling in the, in the about a life event. And, you know, we talk about stuff hitting you at the right time. And there's, there's a phrase for uh, things that happen to you exactly when you need them to happen to you. And I'm not sure what that is. I don't, I don't know if it's serendipity. I don't think serendipity is the right word. Providence, perhaps, but I don't want to give it any religious connotation. I believe it's more um, fortuitous is things that happen when you need them to. Um, So doing a lot of walking, listening to this record and thinking and and processing. And I got uh, to this song and there's a a phrase in there uh, that it's um, fears just in your head, only in your head, fears in your head, only in your head. So forget your head and you'll be free. And I was listening to that on my walk uh, about a week ago. Um, and I just started laughing out loud as I was walking and realized that that was speaking directly to me, that I was I knew what what decision I needed to make, and I was afraid to make it because I was trying to um, encapsulize everything I was going through instead of just realize, you got to go with your heart, forget your head, stop being afraid of things and rationalizing and just. Decide. So it was on that walk with those lyrics in that moment, on that day, that I decided that I'm going to leave MJ1 and take a new job and just take that step out. And fortuitousness listen to music uh, people or listen to things that are talking to you, whether that's a song or a movie or a book or a friend. You never know when the right word's going to come along. And I I think uh, Kyle can speak to that from earlier in the episode about just being present and listening to things around you because you never know when it's going to change your course. You never know you're going to get to that fork in the road. And little decisions sometimes have big impacts and you you just got to pay attention. So I am grateful um, to you for picking this record because, again... It showed itself at the exact right moment, exactly when I needed to hear it. And uh, I'm very grateful. So um, I always wanted this show to be a little bit more about more than just music and more about um, how people uh, relate to music and how people relate to one another and how it impacts their life. uh, Because music has had such a huge impact on my life for any number of reasons. I know it has for a lot of you too. Uh, hopefully, you'll continue listening to to us talk about stuff and and tell some stories and uh, and we love to hear some of yours.
1: Yeah, especially you know anything that we've covered recently. Uh, if you have you know fond memories or positive or negative memories, let us know. Um, if you uh, you know have something like uh, Keith did at the beginning of this episode, if you have something you want us to listen to. Um, and hopefully talk about if we uh, enjoy it. Uh, get in touch with us. Info at AudioJudo.com uh, is our email address. That's the easiest way to get in touch with us. Um, on Facebook, it's Facebook.com forward slash AudioJudo. You can respond to us there. Uh, Twitter at AudioJudo. Uh, Instagram at AudioJudo. Um, and if you want to do what Keith did uh, at the beginning of this episode, you can uh, uh, just use the... V- uh, voice recorder on your phone uh, record a little message and email it to us it's the easiest way to get uh, get on the show um, because then we know that it's uh, it's actually your genuine voice not us reading somebody else's
0: words well said well said indeed from both of us so that is uh, Hunky Dory by David Bowie and we will talk to you in a couple of weeks thanks for listening thanks everybody have a good night alright bye